people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. Your longest college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to cite your source. Who's your source? My best friend, sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girlfriend. And that about sums it up. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, of course, Rob Van Hop. What up, Rob? How's it going, buddy? I don't understand why you have to say that twice. <laughs> you and most of our other listeners. <laughs> uh, how's Are it going? We, okay, we're almost to like our 200th show, right? I mean, that is I think, correct. So, question. When do we... What time of season do we create a new intro song? Uh, December. First week of December. Okay, well, wow. So are we, do we take um, suggestions or requests? Like from sure. People? From like, you, of course. Have ideas? Okay. Oh, I'm, so fixing our, I'm fixing our Sh- shot here. A shout out to people. If you have ideas or audio clips that you think should be in our new intro, let Caleb know. That's right. That is right. All right. What up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. People are trickling in slowly but surely here. And a good what up and shalom to everybody out there in Radio Land on Tor Resource Radio. By the way, for those who don't know, Tor Resource Radio has gone back to our original format. And now you can hear uh, teachings and uh, Bible readings and uh, talk shows on Tor Resource Radio all the time. And we're happy about that. And not only that, but we're, uh, be- we decided, okay, if we're going to go back to the original format of the radio station, we should really do it right. And so we're, uh, we're getting some new programs and we're building uh, some new scheduling so that people will be able to see it. We're creating a new web app that uh, people will be able to see the schedule on. Uh, it's it's going to be very good all around. But for right now, if you'd like to listen to Torah Resource Radio, uh, you can do so by going to, well, Torah Resource and then clicking on the radio button, the listen live button. Or you can just go to TorahResourceRadio.com. That'll take you to the page and you can listen from there as well. And all of that will be uh, reformed soon. Um, <laughs> ha ha! See what I, I did there? It. See what I did there? See? All right. Uh, hey, chat room, tell, tell us if uh, I'm louder than Rob or vice versa. Okay. Testing. Yeah. So it's, uh, for those who don't know, October 31st is not only uh, Halloween, but it's also the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And that's not exactly true, right? I mean, the Reformation really started. A symbolic date. Yeah, it's um, it's, I mean, it's a significant date, but it's it's it, it in no way captures the whole. And obviously, Luther himself no, knew very well that there were um, people who had come before, who had even died. Well, and there are people who would die after 
right? Like Tidale, for example. Um, but yeah, boy, it was dangerous. These are, it was dangerous to be involved with. The, oh, people were getting burned at the stake left and right. But here's the thing is that the Reformation really started back in the 1300s. And we'll talk about that. 14th century is really when the, the Reformation really started to, be, to take shape. And of course, the, uh, the, the nailing of the 95 Theses uh, to the door at Wittenberg by Martin Luther was the day that people really uh, focus in on the, the birth of the Reformation. Well, of course, there was uh, about 150, 200 years before that uh, that really shaped everything. We'll talk about that all in, in just a few minutes. Right, yeah, right. But uh, first, let's uh, tell you this. First of all, the Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. TorahResource.com is full of all sorts of great things, um, like free articles and free 24-7 radio and uh, all sorts of free stuff. Um, you would be amazed at the amount of free things that we give away. And one thing that people don't really realize about Torah Resource is at some point in time, every single thing that we produce is is presented for free to those who are uh, who have their eye on the site. If you right, in other words, things that are the most cutting edge, right, are coming out. And you, if you're in tune with that, you can get all that. And then later that it gets compiled and edited, sold, bundled and packaged. Yeah. That's right. Um, and actually there is, for those who want to pay a little bit of money for a hundred dollars a year, a year, you can get a library membership. It's less than $8 and 50 cents a month. Yeah, and I was say, that's not even 10 bucks a month. Yeah. And so, uh, there's, uh, there's things in the library that, uh, are not, have not been, uh, released and, some things that will never be released on Tor Resource. For instance, uh, we just released a teaching by uh, Spike Pissaris that was done at the 2016 family camp. Now, Spike doesn't work for Tor Resource. He was just a guest speaker. And so we won't sell that. Uh, we won't sell that teaching. He did it on Psalm 104, I believe. And um, But but people in the library can, can watch it all they want. Okay. He's also a pretty sweet percussionist. Yeah, he's also a drummer. That's true. Yes. He's he's a drummist. <laughs> uh, the Nelsons. Shalom from our car in Tennessee. Um, I have <laughs> somebody told me that they that they had a friend who was listening to Steve Berkson and was all up on St like really into Steve Berkson. And that he sat his friend down and watched our show on Steve Berkson's view of salvation and his friend like Rejected it, like rejected person, Berkson because of it. That made I like, got an email from someone that had a recent, uh, uh, I don't need to go into too much detail, recent run in with, with him. And, uh, wow. Yeah. And it didn't go well. Apparently, uh, it didn't go well. People didn't, I don't know. You know, it's just, wow. You know, I, Back to back to the Reformation. I think if we identify Caleb, if we identify and talk about the things that are core, why is it important to remember what the the basic uh, stances that are undergird the basic foundation for what we think of the Protestant Reformation as a whole? If we're clear on those things, I think we'll we'll see how those values today are still important in our discerning of of truth. You know, I don't think they're stand, just important standing for the truth. I think that they're foundational for our faith. And I yeah, think that there are exactly, things that are exactly. that are uh, are uh, preached within the within the word. 
Um, okay, before we get to that though, let's let's do this. Um, so, oh, and we should also mention that uh, we have a comment line. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. Oh, that's the Tor resource. I want the comment line. Uh, you can give us a call, 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. We've actually been getting more messages on that comment line, and we appreciate that. Um, we haven't had time to get to them just because we've been so busy over here um, getting ready for the ETS and SPL and also what? other things. Rob's writing papers. And uh, have you decided our – so there's been a hiccup with one of uh, Rob's papers at the SBL. Uh, his yeah. paper on Galatians. Now I know that you were really disappointed about this. Are you? What have you decided? Well, it turns out we we find out that my paper is on Tuesday morning. The section that's devoted to Galatians uh, is Tuesday morning from nine to eleven thirty, and our plane leaves Boston at like seven a.m. And so I've been looking and been praying about this and looking into uh, because tickets are really expensive, as you know, and um, especially right before Thanksgiving. Yeah, and we're dealing with you know, the d days leading up to Thanksgiving. And there's, there's no way we could have known this. It, it was, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I think I've learned from. But the question is now I'm in a space of like, okay, Lord, do I, uh, you know, somehow come up with funds to bump my ticket. So I still give my presentation and then, bump my plane ticket but there's all these fines and stuff and it's 400 uh, bucks yeah well now it's more uh <laughs> i talked to a guy from the airline he said well just watch it because the prices go up and down they don't it's not going to continually go up it will probably come back down and then people are like yeah but don't use the same ip address because their cookies will see that you're coming back and looking for the same thing and they keep <laughs> trying to incentivize oh, no. you in the price so Plus the yeah the the fees for chain anyway at some point it might be cheaper to just buy a one way ticket home that's later in the day, but anyway it's uh, just pray for me you know I I'm I uh, just not sure well you know and if it's okay if I have to let it go and and just say I can email the the session group and just say sorry you know I apologize but travel logistics just didn't work out for me to be able to participate so we'll see. Mostly it's just prayer and wisdom that God's will be done and that I don't want to force something that he's – if he's closing the door. That's right. Maybe right. the Lord's making it so that next year you'll uh, you'll present in front of a packed room of hundreds of people and N.T. Yeah. Wright will uh, disagree with you openly and you'll be able to uh, debate him on the uh, oh, Q&A floor. Yeah. <laughs> ah, dreams. Ah, dreams. You know, okay. <laughs> it's good. It, it It's okay to – you know. Sometimes things uh, will be disappointing, you know. It's like, oh, I, I really would was was focusing on doing that, but uh, also I'm in prayer. I'm not making, you know, in prayer seeking the Lord's wisdom, and there's still a few weeks to to breathe with this. But anyway, still have my other paper that is uh, Monday, I think. So and we're there, of course, and Caleb, your dad, and I are both in that same session. That's I'm really excited about that one. That's uh, for the Masora. You know, Which I'm, is another topic that the, the topic of Masora is associated with the Reformation. It yes, it is. Because what <laughs> happens is when you have independent uh, scholars rising up saying we're going to translate the Bible into new languages, the Catholics are saying, well, you either accept our authority or you're going to have to accept the Jewish authority because you're going to have to go by these vowel points. And so the whole debate 
arose, did these vowel points go back all, all the way to Mount Moses, Sinai or yeah. not? Right. <clears throat> so anyway, that's that's a, a, a nice uh, another aspect to uh, you know all the all the issues that were floating around that people had to chew on and and wrestle with. And today we can look back and, and we have like the influx of manuscripts of of apostolic writings, for example, was just crazy in like the 19th century. You know, we have we have so much more in a in our in the treasure house world treasure house because they're in different libraries all across the world of of uh, papyri right of it, ancient manuscripts and we can now read all of them and compare all of them and that's Luther and and Tyndale right those guys would have dreamed could probably couldn't even have dreamed of. They, they would have just been in heaven. Seriously, they would have thought of themselves as being like, like just uh, in an elated, like unbelievable world if they had the technology and access that we have today. So what's the, what happens then? Where's the passion? Can we have that passion today? That passion for the word of God, that passion to get the truth of the word of God out there and <laughs> To be to see the value of the original languages. That's what we have now. Is people have Bibles, they're, you know, houses full of Bibles and translations. But are we reading them? Are we passionate about the Word, um, or have we gone gone stale? And we we want to be aware of that in our own hearts. You know, what's my heart attitude towards the Word of God? Is it you know where people are being burned at the stake for having translated it so that they could because their drive to to teach and preach and get the word of God into the hands of people so that people could think for themselves and have, have a biblical basis for questioning what the heck the Pope is doing, right? Or what the heck these institutions are doing. Like he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to uh, touch on any of the other subjects. He wants to go straight to the Reformation. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I just know this is our focus. So, okay, you you lead the way, my well, friend. Well, first of all, the the uh, chat room wants to know if you're not going to give the teaching at the SBL, are you going to uh, teach it anyway so that people can see it? I said I you're turning it into a book. Yeah, I want to – this just is more area for prayer for me. I would like to – there. I, Lord will, and I have uh, numerous different books, but um, – I, it's helpful to have these presentations because they help me clarify my own thoughts. And that's one of the values of the SBL presentation is you're able to present to people that are really thinking along in this specific uh, arena and they can give you good feedback. And that's, that's how we need to learn. We, need, we learn from people when we have that peer review, right? When we, we can present our ideas to people who are probably who are even more familiar with all the issues in the language of, for example, the epistle to Galatians. Um, so that I can hear and learn, right? This is what this is about. And at Torah resource Institute, we value this aspect of our learning. That's Peer why review. we try yeah. to, we try to go to the ETS. We try to go to the SBL and because it's a valuable forum. And, and we believe that this is, part of biblical wisdom, right? Wisdom is in a multitude of counsel. 
the wise man, it says, the wise man will listen and increase his learning. In Proverbs 1, it says that. So we want to be the biblical wise person, not wise in our own eyes, but wise in that we we understand our need and dependence to, to learn from other people. And we'll happily say, this is who we're learning from. This is who we're learning from. And I think, Caleb, as we know, this sets us apart from different groups out there that teach. They're just teachers and they teach, but we don't know who they learn from. Did they ever even go to school? How come they're not presenting at ETS or SBL or, or you know, it's like someone, for example, I know there's a rabbit trail here, but someone I had a pretty been on a rabbit Skype, trail since we started. <laughs> Keep pretty going. healthy Skype call for was over an hour. Someone from a different country, and who's convinced about how to pronounce the name, right? And they've been listening to teachers out there that are teaching how to pronounce God's sacred name a certain way. And I said, um, you know, if this person was really convinced that their arguments were based in the Masoretic tradition, there's SBL, there's IOMS, International Organization of Masoretic Studies. There's places of scholars of the Masora that would be thrilled to hear your paper and respond to it. And you would learn in the biblical model of, of hearing and learning. Um, so uh, I think that sets us apart right there is, to, is the fact that we see the value of learning as not a we arrive and now we're just a teacher, but we are always happy to share who our teachers have been, who, uh, where we've, where we really are grateful, and we we lean on them, and where we differ in our readings of certain things, and and uh, that's a big part of of who we are. Okay, let's get to our topics. <laughs> so I want to bring this up very quickly before we get to the Reformation. Um, I got a email from someone at One Nineteen Ministries the other day. And they asked me, so, okay, let's go back even further. Uh, back in uh, December, Rob and I did a show on Christmas, as we do every every year, right? We do a sh uh, our Christmas special, which is talking about uh, whether or not Christmas is pagan and the origins and roots of, of uh, a lot of the traditions and whatnot. Well, we made a short video, about 14 minutes long. And it was titled Sunburned Tested. And for those who don't know, 119 Ministries had put out a uh, video series, two-part series, years and years ago called Sunburned. And basically they're arguing that Christmas uh, and all of the customs that come along with it uh, directly come from uh, sun worship. Uh, and so they... As 119 always does, you know, the one thing I can certainly give to 119 Ministries is that their videos and their presentation is much like FFOZ, just in video format. So, uh, you know, 119 has kind of really hit well on the on the videos and making their videos look very, very nice and professional. And, uh, you know, FFOZ has, has made their books. So good, good, strong marketing. Very strong marketing. Well, not just marketing, just uh, production. Or production. Yeah, yeah. True production value. Um, and, you know, FFOZ has done the same thing, except for with uh, with with books. You know, if you look at anything from FFOZ, their, their books are very, very nicely produced. 
Um, so uh, 119 Ministries put out this uh, teaching called Sunburned, and it was all about Christmas. And this is the, uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit of, of what was written to me by this uh, person at 119 Ministries. They said, uh, as you may or may not know, we took down our sunburn teaching back in February or March due to discovering there were errors in it some of which you pointed out in your podcast. We were wondering if you would uh, go ahead and remove the podcast since the teaching has been removed for quite a while now and we are still working on the remaster. I assume that the remaster um, means that they're, um, you know, that they're going to uh, obviously redo some of their sources. And, and yeah, remaster usually doesn't mean re-recording. It means just going back and changing the lighting and the EQ and, you know, well, I mean, there can be some pretty big changes, uh, in remastering. For instance, look at George Lucas making, uh, Hans, you know, shoot second instead of shoot first. This is like, <laughs> this is like the, uh, you know, this is like biblical hermeneutics for the star Wars fan who shot first <laughs> anyway. Um, so uh, now I looked at the video, I thought, okay, you know, this, and it was, it was, uh, for us, not for anyone else, but for us, this video actually got quite a, a lot of uh, views and, and interaction. 41 dislikes. <laughs> 41 dislikes, thumbs down. It got, I think, six thumbs up, uh, which was really funny. Uh, so, and I know that people are still sharing this because I saw somebody share this just the other day on Facebook. Um, so I did, I took it down and I took it down because, you know, I think that a lot of people might think that we're 100% against 119 ministries. I think that 119 has a very good heart in what they're trying to do. They're trying to turn people towards Torah and to, uh, the Messiah. And for that, I applaud them greatly. I think that that's great. I think that they've made some missteps in some of the teachings that they've made. Obviously we, uh, I think our harshest criticism of 119 came with their backing of the Copper Scroll project, uh, which I, I stand by that 100 percent um and i it, think their calendar of the passion was something we yeah well yeah i that's going to be an ongoing debate between uh people no matter what scholarship yeah. comes out but uh, i'm encouraged that it seems that 119 ministries they have they actually contacted us before this as well about a uh, paper that my father wrote with some questions on that um and so i'm encouraged that it looks like 119 is trying to do a little bit more uh, due diligence in finding sources that they they believe to be uh, good and true, and um, to make their teachings more uh, accurate in those kind of things. So I I uh, in good faith I've taken down that video and I I I'm not going to uh, repost it ever, but um, you know I I am interested to see uh, the remaster of Sunburn and what they come up with because I think uh, I think this is an issue that a lot of people are interested in and a lot of people are going to glob on to um, because yeah well there's two sides of the fence right there's the well there's more than two sides of the fence there's the ultra villainize anything and everything that you know you can't light a candle in December because it, it might have to do with paganism. Uh, all the way to there's nothing wrong at all with Christmas and we should, you know, bring uh, bring Yule logs into our house and offer children on them. You know, both sides of the fence. So um, the the point is, is that, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what uh, 119 Ministries does with this. Okay, let's move on. Let's move to the Reformation. Should we just go straight Yay! into history? Woo! Should we just go straight into history? So Talk to, I, talk to us about what... What is it? Okay. Um, well, I think that uh, 
One of the main things that I will bring up this this show is going to be indulgences, and that's actually what the name of this show is. It's uh, the Reformation special on indulgences. Um, those who have come out of the Christian Church or studied the, 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 the I'm sorry the Catholic Church and or studied the Roman Catholic Church are probably very familiar with indulgences and what this is. For those who have never been in the Catholic Church, indulgences is a completely foreign concept. So, um, the uh, so let's go to what indulgences are. Okay. Well, here, let, you let before, let's look at the word uh, the word protest because the the basic of Protestant means protest, right? And if you look up pro, what does it mean to protest? It's a statement or an action expressing disapproval of or objection to something. Right, that's what it is as a noun, and the verb to pro to protest is to express that that objection to what someone has said or done, or to declare something um, firmly and emphatically in the face of stated or implied doubt or in response to an accusation. So these are just different Google dictionary definitions, but the the core word here is protest, and so if we if we think now when we talk about indulgences that protest is what's happening right okay There's but the, but the but the thing about the thing about luther and the idea from many christians that of the reformation or the protest many people believe that that luther was uh was protesting against papal authority that the pope had too much authority and this although true was not exactly what luther was protesting he also right, was not cause, right because if you read the 95 theses He's not saying there should not be a pope at that point. Correct. And he's not he's even He's not saying the pope is the antichrist. That's fast forward. <laughs> right? So, uh, that's a good point. Oh, and not only that, but he's also not uh, technically speaking, Luther was not at this point fighting against salvation by by works. Uh, that is, you know, faith by grace. Instead, he was uh, fighting against uh, he was fighting against the the uh, doctrine of indulgences. And this right. is really how the the Reformation caught fire. But you, you can almost see he's a he's more he's he's locked onto a truth when you read the ninety five theses. Yes. But he it hasn't infiltrated his whole thought, right? It hasn't yet. He's still green, but yes. he's bold. He's bold, but he's totally green. And it's really cool to to just read through those and realize, wow, this is a snapshot. Luther is an amazing. Uh, example of a story of a life that is that just is so bold that he and he goes through many phases of 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 transformation and of so, course at the end some people argue that he he had some sort of mental disorder or something um, but anyway I don't even know if it was in the in the end I I think that uh, there might have been some mental issues. Uh, even early on. Anyway, not the point. So the so I let's let's go back in time a little bit. If I had a time machine here, we could uh, play some time machine sounds. I don't though. Uh, so uh, let's go back in time a little bit. We're gonna go back to the 13th century, the end of the 13th century. That is uh, 1294. In 1294, a pope came to power. The pope was Boniface the Eighth. Boniface the Eighth. Eighth, and uh, he was pope from December of 1294 through October of 1303 when he died. 
Boniface the the eighth did some very amazing things for Catholicism. We have to remember that that being pope uh, back in the thirteenth and fourteenth century was not like being pope today. While we see the pope on Time magazine and and he's going and hugging people and and kissing babies and and these kind of things and you know giving spiritual guidance to uh, the Catholics all over the world, really he doesn't have nearly the amount of power as he once had. In fact, uh, the Pope at times, like Boniface VIII, uh, opposed various kings, and the people followed the Pope as opposed to the king. So, for instance, Boniface VIII was uh, in staunch opposition to the king of France, King Philip, at the time. Um, Okay, so in... There's two main things that Boniface VIII did. Number one is, in 1300, he, well, in 13, let's see here, I think it was 1302, Boniface announced uh, what was called Unum Sanctum. And I'll quote this. I, By the way, for those who receive our show notes, I attempted to put links to good articles in the show notes that would reference these things. I got a lot of these things from the books on my shelves um, and then just tried to, to substantiate them with articles that you could find online so that you can kind of uh, research online as well. Uh, this is a quote from one of the websites that I did pull. Boniface announced that he would depose Philip, the king of France, if need be, and issued the bull, which means a letter, uh, unum sanctum, which means one holy, the most famous papal document of the Middle Ages, affirming the authority of the Pope as the heir of Peter and vicar of Christ over all human authorities, spiritual and temporal. Spiritual power, according to the bull, rests in the hands of the church. Temporal power is in the hands of the kings and soldiers, but is to be exercised only as the church permits, because things spiritual are superior to things temporal. If temporal power errs, it is to be judged by the spiritual power. So, Basically what this did, and uh, we didn't have the Catholic Church announce that the Pope was basically infallible until the 1900s, but this was actually what set up, Unum Sanctum is really what set up the idea of papal power uh, to to the full degree. And basically what Unum Sanctum did, when Pope Boniface VIII declared this, what he was saying is that the Pope had more power than the king. Because he had spiritual power over temporal power. The spiritual power is bigger, yeah. What this did ultimately for the church and for uh, the people who were looking at church law and whatnot is it brought up the debate between absolute papal monarchy, which means that the pope has absolute power, as opposed to limited monarchy. And the ultimate question is, can a pope ever be deposed? In other words, the pope is doing something wrong. How do we get rid of the pope? This continues to happen throughout history, this debate over papal power up until the 1900s. Um, and if if so, if the Pope does need to be deposed, here's probably even the, the bigger question. If the Pope does need to be deposed, who deposes him? Is it a council? Is it cardinals? Yeah, is there a spiritual power yeah, ex- on earth over his spiritual power? Yeah, exactly. It's, the a, other- politics. it's a politics issue. Exactly. The other huge thing that Boniface VIII did was in 1300, he declared it the Jubilee year. I believe it was in February. He declared it the Jubilee year. Now, uh, this obviously comes from the Torah, the Jubilee year and whatnot. Um, but what this, edi- what this did was uh, it, 
well, we can get to this in a few minutes, but this is really where you have the wholesale sale of indulgences going on. And we'll talk about that in a second. In 1309, Clement V became Pope. He was a Frenchman who decided he didn't like Rome and he moved the papacy to Avignon, France. This was a huge deal because the bishops, you know, could you be a bishop and not uh, over a, a place and not live there? The answer is yes, but it really wasn't tradition you know it was tradition for the for the pope of or for the uh the bishop of rome which is the pope to be in rome uh this time in catholic church history is known as the babylonian captivity of the church as the pope was gone for around 70 years uh, which i find humorous okay so let's keep going in 1377 pope gregory the seventh moved the papacy back to rome this is huge for the people in rome soon after gregory the seventh died which is not good for rome the french cardinals who were still residing in avignon were a significant amount of the papal bureaucracy that still functioned <clears throat> and the roman cardinals were afraid that another uh, french pope would be elected and would move the papacy back to france and so this was this was not any small ordeal. There was riots in the streets in Rome when they were trying to decide if they you know who the new pope was going to be. And there was uh, several people that were put up as uh, as like the the people that should be the next pope. One was Roman, one was French, and one was Italian. In what would be a kind of compromise, an Italian who served at Avignon would be elected to the papacy, and hence Urban the Eleventh was named the new pope. Due to various factors, the French cardinals grew to dislike Urban XI, and so they renounced him as pope and elected a Frenchman, Clement XII, to the papacy, who would lead the church from France. Okay, so basically, let me paint the picture. Here's what happens. <coughs> the pope dies. <coughs> Pardon me. The pope dies, and uh, they there's all this hubbub, and so they make this compromise. They elect the Italian pope. The Italian pope comes in, he decides he's not a nice guy. In fact, he's really not a nice guy, especially to the Frenchman, which is interesting because he's lived in Avignon, France. Okay. And so he starts kind of being a bully to the Frenchman. The French don't like it. And so the French cardinals get together and they say, that guy's not a Pope anyway. We'll, we'll just elect our own Pope because the papacy has been in Avignon for so long. Now we can just say that the, if we put a Pope in Avignon, then he's the real Pope. And so that's exactly what they did. And this is what began what is known in church history as the Great Schism. The Great Schism, <clears throat> pardon me, was the fact that you had one pope in France, one pope in Rome. Both of them said the other one was not legitimate. And if you followed the other pope, you were excommunicated from the church. And so essentially, all of Catholicism was excommunicated from the church by one pope or the other. This is a huge problem due to various factors. The French cardinals grew to dislike. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> pardon we me. Had the get... same thing happens in 19th century uh, European Jewish rabbinic communities. You have rabbis excommunicating each other. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem. It's like, it's like <laughs> what do you do now? Okay. So uh, many attempts were made to end the schism, yet the most promising uh, was uh, had led only to the addition at Pisa in 1410 of yet another line of claimants to the papal title. So basically what happens here is they call a church council. They say, look, everybody's excommunicated from one pope or the other. What do we do here? 
And this is really where the battle over papal, uh, papal power comes from, right? You know, who's really in charge? Can we depose a pope? Can we not depose a pope? And throughout the time that there's two popes, they live and die. It's not like just one pope and another pope are, are vying. For, you know, one pope dies in Avignon, they elect a new pope in Avignon. So now it's really who's the real pope. Although the council was summoned under imperial pressure by the Pisan Pope John the Thirteenth. Um, oh wait, hang on, let me go back. The, intoler the intolerable situation of three rival popes ultimately led through a complex process of ecclesiastical and secular dipl uh, diploma diplomacy to the Council of Constance. Although the council was summoned under imperial pressure by the Pisan Pope John the Third, uh, John the Twenty Third, which was from 1410 to 1415, in its de uh, determination to end the schism, it did not hesitate to depose him along with his Avignonese rival Benedict the Eighth, and to accept the resignation of the Roman Clement Gregory the Twelfth. The council then proceeded to elect a successor, Martin the Tenth. Oh no, I'm sorry, Martin V, rather, uh, who was from 1417 to 1431, the first pope in 40 years to be able to command the allegiance of the whole Latin church. So th Martin V comes in. He's finally the one who basically gets the Catholic church behind him. <clears throat> and now you have these other popes trying to make claim, but really, no, by this time, the people have now followed Martin V, and you have the people coming in behind Martin V. Okay, now, why would this be important? Well, all of this history that I've just laid before you is important for several reasons. Number one, we have to know that Boniface VIII did several things, including, uh, including making the Jubilee year, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, which is a very important, this is really probably one of the key uh, the key aspects to Martin Luther and uh, nailing his thesis to the door. Um, so, but this just kind of gives you the, the landscape, the political landscape, because once again, the church was extremely uh, powerful in politics as well. They were helping rule nations, essentially. Um, and uh, the other problem that you have now is that there's huge corruption in the church. And uh, becoming a bishop was not how holy you were. A lot of it had to do with how much money you had. And so these uh, these offices were being bought and sold, and people were uh, asking the Pope to be, uh, you know, if I give the church, the church, which really means if I give you, the Pope, you know, X amount of thousands of gold pieces, may I please have the bishopry of, you know, overall, the art, can I be the Archbishop of Germany or, you know, whatever. And so this is what happened. Do you want to stop here? Is there anything that you want to interject before we keep going? No, I... I I think you're building a very thorough background uh, to... Too boring? Is it boring? Well, you know me. I'm a <laughs> short attention span kind of guy. So. Okay. Uh, no, so... But it, what you're doing is you're, you're laying a clear picture here of why... What is... If, if Luther is a... If there's a protest concerning not the papacy itself by Luther's day, but... Correct something that's going on with the 95 theses, because that's really what we're talking about, right, with this this day coming up. Yeah, and, and actually what the the other interesting thing is that even though we see the 95 theses, what later comes out of Calvin, which is the five points of Calvin, really relate to this. So I'll, I'll speed up. I'll speed up here, okay? 
and listen to a little bit of how the Catholic Church, um, how the Catholic Church now has formed their theology by the 1300s. Yeah, and then and then what are people hearing? What Luther's talk by Luther's day, which of course is another hundred years so or so, but people are common people have wrong beliefs that they've been taught, and Luther's angry about it, and he's trying to help exactly them, help them learn the truth. Um, and getting them the word of God over the traditions of man is part of that, uh, uh, that ax, right. That's chopping in there. So, okay, let's, let's move now to how, according to Roman Catholicism in the 1300s, how a person was saved. First of all, there's merit, and this is something that we have to talk about. So the idea of a worker is worthy of his hire. The Catholic Church said that this is true not only physically in our physical and temporal world, but it's actual. It's actually, uh, it actually applies to spiritual work as well. So if I do a good work, and God and I do it for God, God essentially being the employer now owes me for that work. This is this is the, the mindset. Okay, so he There's owes like an a, agreement of an employment agreement. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay, so I do this work and now I get this. I get this. Uh, I get paid for it essentially, and I get paid in spiritual uh, worth. Okay, um, and so th- here's a quote for you in the theological Bitcoin. Exactly, spiritual Bitcoin. In the Spirit theological coin. sense, a supernatural merit can only be salutary. A salutary act to which God is, in consequence of His infall- infallible promise, owes a supernatural reward consisting ultimately in eternal life, which is the uh, beatific vision in heaven. Uh, As the main purpose of this article is to vindicate the Catholic doctrine, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so um, here, this is... uh, I'll go off the I'll go off the script a little bit. Here's here's really what's going on. They say that that there is such thing as grace, and what grace is is grace is given to the saints and to people like Jesus and Mary. So Mary, since she bore the Son of God, her merit is way more than what she needs. So she goes straight into heaven, and all this extra merit that she's gotten, in other words, payment for the work that she's done, all this extra merit gets put into a huge storehouse. It's like she won the lottery, like $10 million, but she really only needed 500000 to live her whole life. Exactly. And so there's this huge bank account of extra. That's exactly right. And... So what happens? All this merit, and this happens with the with the saints too. So, uh, you know, Paul, since he did such a great work in converting all these people, he has all this extra merit. He doesn't actually need all of it, and so all this extra merit goes into a storehouse, and this is called the treasury. I'm I'm not making this up. This is I mean, you, I've given you links to the Catholic Encyclopedia. This storehouse is called the treasury of the church. The ministry of the church bears with it the power and office of teaching publicly and administering the sacraments according to order to the power and function of remitting the retaining sins. The former is termed the power of the order, the latter, the power of the keys. And basically what they say is that one person has been given the keys to this storehouse of extra merit. And who is that? That's the Pope. The Pope has the keys to the storehouse of extra merit. And so what he does and this now we have to talk a little bit about purgatory. Basically, the church, the church teaches that um, you don't you don't go straight to heaven. You have this checklist, and 
God's sitting there going, okay, well, you did this, but you had enough merit for this. You did this. Uh-oh. Okay, I'm adding all this up, and you actually owe me 150 years. And so during that 150 years, I'm going to throw you into purgatory, which is, you know, hell, essentially. You're going to throw you into purgatory. You're going to work off this extra, and then after the 150 years, now you can come into heaven because you've paid off that debt. And so what Pulp Boniface VIII did was we're coming out of the we're coming out of the Crusades. And what the popes did was they said, if you fight in the Crusades, then you have an instant full indulgence. And what that means is that you will spend no t- you get a get out of purgatory free card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reason why is because it's a good deed that you're doing working for Jerusalem to get the church back into Jerusalem and, and take over Jerusalem. So you get an instant get out of purgatory free card. And so all these people are going to fight in, you know, fight to take over Jerusalem so that they can get out of purgatory. And what does the Pope Boniface VIII say? He says, well, there's people like cripples and, uh, you know, mothers and children who don't have the luxury of going and fighting in these horrific wars, but they still want this get out of free uh, jail free card. And so he made a ultimate indulgence for the Jubilee. He declared February 1300 the Jubilee, and he said, if you come to Rome, if you come to one of these two huge cathedrals, and you come every day for 30 days if you live in Rome, and 15 days every day if you live outside of Rome, then you get the same indulgence as if you fought for Jerusalem. And this is what brings in the selling of indulgences. My, 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 my. Okay, so now let's get to Luther. And what so he the was... motivation for the individual person then is fear that I'm not fear that I'm going to die and I'm going to owe God a bunch and I'm going to suffer. It's actually not you. It's your parents or your relatives. Oh, well, that's right. Me or people who've gone right. Yeah. So in other words, help them too in this world. Exactly. So you you want to save up as many indulgences as you can, and the reason why is because your grandfather or great-grandfather might be spending hundreds of thousands of years in purgatory right now for all the wrong that he did, and you want to help your relative get out. Luther was really for, for fighting against the buying. It's a kind of a, it solves the same problem that, re, that reincarnation tries to solve for, for Jewish Kabbalists, right? The idea that if I don't keep all the commandments perfectly, I, what do you do in that situation? I have to come back. I have to be um, reincarnated, and I have another chance. And if I, there's a fear basis. If I, um, there are certain sins that they'll come back as like a lower animal form. No, what are you talking and, about now? I'm sorry, I missed the very well, beginning. Well, there's, you know, there's in the same time period. Oh, you're talking the about Jewish world. Yes. Okay. Yes, like, I'm with you. A, a, you know, rabbi comes back as a dog or as a frog. Because and then he needs to be released from that by from the merit or favor shown by a living rabbi, right? Yeah. And so, isn't it it's interesting? Like, it's like the the princess kisses the frog, uh, who's really a prince, but he's trapped under a spell. It's it's kind of like this sort of thing. Isn't I don't it, know the it, idea of. I think yeah. it's interesting how Judaism and Christianity. We don't know who was following who, right? Catholicism properly, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, thank you. But we don't know who was following who, who, but you know, like Pardes comes around during this time. Guess what? Levels. Yeah. Di- yeah. The four different of levels of, of interpretation of the Bible. Guess what was happening at the same time? I forget what they call it. Quant- qu- 
Anyway, it starts with a Q. It's the four levels of interpretation of the Catholic Church. Another thing that Luther was, you know, Luther said, no, we have to take the plain meaning. I know that the chat room is in a uh, discussion right now about uh, Luther being a, a horrible anti-Semite and, um, you know, should we still take what he said? Luckily, it's not for me to judge what, uh, what this man wrote and did, but I can tell you this, somehow God used him, at least portions of what he, he said and did just, I mean, and this, don't get me wrong. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, you know, God used Balaam to bless Israel, right? So I'm not saying that Luther was this stand up, uh, wonderful guy, what I'm saying is, is that God used him to bring about uh, this, you know, this reformation. Okay, so Luther was really fighting against the buying and, uh, of salvation for dead relatives. John Tenzel was one of the uh, one one who fueled Luther to write his 95 theses. Tenzel was quite a salesman, and this guy actually bought his his uh, his seat at the table with the you know as a bishop or whatever. Um, I think he was an archbishop, actually. Tenzel was quite a salesman who would give grand parades into Germany, uh, German cities with pictures of people burning in hell and would say things like, and I quote, don't you hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives crying out, have mercy on us, for we suffer great punishment and pain from this. You can release us with a few alms. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you, you our temporal goods. Why do you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer in the flames when it takes only a little to save us? <laughs> um, you know, so uh, Talk about uh, guilt trip. Yeah. And so he's saying this to, you know, you, you see the little That's old like lady the, with the white bouffant hairdo, the Jewish grandma phone app. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Would it kill you to call? <laughs> That's all these like, <laughs> you'll take my bar mitzvah money. But, but after that, you nothing, you know, it's all this guilt. Like, Oh, that's hilarious. It's a phone app. So the other thing that we need to talk about. Yeah, this is their call. They're from the grave. Yeah. Right? It's from the guilt from, from like, yeah. Wow. The so last. If you, no, yeah, go ahead. if you don't know the Bible, what do you, why would you not believe that? Right? I mean. You, sure. I think any one of us, if we didn't know the word of God, we, why would we not believe? What would we stand on to protest and stand and say, wait a minute. I'm not. I don't believe that. What does it take to to build up a, an individual soul or souls to where they could say no? That's hogwash. I, I have no, no part of that. That's that's false. They have to have the word of God. But if they don't have the word of God, how are they going to do that? Exactly. Exactly. So the last and final things uh, thing I want to talk about. Oh, so it should be noted after after this one uh pilgrimage during the jubilee year to rome where you could get this get out of purgatory free card basically what you have is you have now the pope selling indulgences so he'll say okay you can have a year worth of indulgence which means and the word indulgence sounds weird to our western ears but Basically, what it means is time for a relative out of purgatory. So, in other words, I'll give you, I'll, I'll take one year off of your relative's time in purgatory if you do X, Y, Z. So, if you read your Bible for an hour a day for a month uh, every morning, then you get one year indulgence. Okay, so this is kind of how, and this is how the, the selling of indulgences really takes shape. And now you have full on corruption within the Catholic Church 
people just selling indulgences left and right. The other thing that you have is you have the Catholic Church. They have decided that relics, that is uh, any piece of clothing uh, that has touched one of uh, any saint or uh, or uh, any part of their body. Uh, this they take this from the idea of like uh, you know uh, the apostles if if a handkerchief if they touch people with their handkerchief then they were healed stuff like this right so they take this idea and they make it into what's called relics and the most interesting thing about this is that the Catholic Church being so corrupt at this point they're the ones in charge of authenticating these relics so let's just pretend I'm back in 13 you know. 1350 and i say look i have the beard hair from from paul okay i have some hair from the apostle paul <clears throat> and so they send a cardinal out to me to check to see if if you know to try to authenticate this a cardinal comes to me and he says this is the uh this is the hair from from paul's beard i say yes he says okay do you have any proof i say yes i do the proof is these $500 bills, right? You know, like here's, here's some gold for your coffer. And he's like, <clears throat> you're right. <clears throat> Pardon me. You're right. This is the hair from Paul's beard. And all of a sudden now I have a relic. And if you come into contact with this relic and or wear it for a certain amount of time, then there's huge indulgences that are, are made. And so what you have is you have the Catholic church then attempting to collect all these relics and sell to people the ability to see these relics and be in the same room with these relics so that they now get extra indulgences. This from the book, The Reformation, a narrative history related to uh, by contemporary observance of participants. Uh, this person says, like stamp collecting in our day, the acquisition of relics was limited only by ingenuity and finances. The extensive collection of Elector Frederick the Wise of Saxony was widely famous. This is the guy who actually started the uh, the university that that Luther taught at. Okay, and uh, it says on a trip to the Holy Land, he laid the foundation. Continuous buying and selling brought about the accumulation of new relics virtually every day. As the beautifully illustrated and concisely annotated catalog of the collection pointed out, a total of 1,907,202 days of indulgence was, was available from the collection. In other words, <clears throat> that's how many days, mil over a million days, almost two million days, out of purgatory for his relatives from this collection, which now he houses and he can sell, you know, time to be with these relics. So this is, this is essentially what Luther is fighting against. I have to cough again. Hang on just a sec. I muted myself so the people on the radio didn't hear that. Okay. Um, that's about what I have for the, uh, the the Catholic Church in terms of the history and what Luther was actually fighting against when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door. And a lot of people think that this is like an act of defiant, you know, defiance when he came and he nailed this to the, the door. Like, ha ha, see what I'll do. I'll nail this to the front of the church. No, no, no. This door actually uh, was like a, a bulletin board at the university. The interesting thing is that because of the uh, the invention of the printing press, when he when he did nail his ninety five thesis to the door, 
some people have said that within two weeks, it was in, you know, his 95 theses were in uh, every town in Germany because somebody got a hold of it and printed them. And uh, everything, you know, people, people sent this to the Pope to show that this, uh, this monk needed to be, um, needed to be uh, burned at the stake. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the Pope basically said, this is just the ranting of a drunk monk. It'll go away. Um, and actually, uh, we were talking just the other day, uh, Rob and I were talking just the other day about John Huss and John Huss was, uh, was burned at the stake, uh, just under a hundred years before Luther, uh, was, came, came on the scene. Huss, uh, as the story goes, whether or not this is true or not, uh, there's a lot of different, uh, uh people who, who claim this. John Huss at his, uh, when he was being burned, uh, he said to the cardinal who was lighting the flames, and Huss in, I think, what, German? Or I, I forget what language. Uh, Huss is how you say goose. And so John Huss said to the cardinal who was lighting the flames, uh, now we will cook, or the cardinal said, now we will cook this goose. And uh, John Huss said, you may cook this goose, but within a hundred years, will uh, an eagle or a, in, in some uh, cases it's dove, an eagle or a dove will come who you will not be able to thwart. And uh, many people point to this as a prophecy from John Huss that Luther would rise. And uh, interestingly, uh, Luther, less than 100 years later, was confirmed as a monk in the exact church that John Huss was buried in, uh, which is interesting. Take it or leave it as what it is. Um, anyway, so as you can see now, now that you know the, a little bit of the history of why Luther nailed these uh, theses to the door and whatnot, now we can start to see the uh, the formation of things like salvation by faith alone, sola scriptura, right? The, the five solas. The five solas really are, are uh, talking against things that come out of the selling of indulgences. The papal power, right? The unum sanctum that was put in in, thir in 1302. Um, the selling of indulgences in the Jubilee year, all these things now have been compacted together and the unrest of the papacy with two, three popes at a time leading up into Luther's time. And now the full on selling of indulgences and the corruption in the church, Luther's done with it. And this is where you get things like Sola Scriptura. No, the, the Pope is not unum sanctum. He's not the one who's in charge of everything. Instead, it's the scriptures alone. And uh, really, when Luther was, was going through, this is a rich history, but when Luther was uh, you know, doing his debates, really what these people were trying to do, they weren't trying to actually debate him on scripture. And what the scripture said, what they were trying to do was prove that, that Luther was opposing the Pope. Because if Luther was opposing the Pope, he was opposing the Catholic Church, and if he was opposing the Catholic Church, he was worthy of death, according to these people. And so this is the fact that Luther wasn't burned at the stake uh, is really a miracle in and of itself. He was protect. Yeah, he found political like protection, right? Uh, wow. Well, well, just like well, Tyndale found protection. Yeah, until in he was Germany. Until he was burned. Right. But for a time, and even yeah. the, that I was learning about the Spanish Bible, the man who translated the first full Spanish Bible translated it in exile. He wasn't in Spain at the time. Yeah. Because the Inquisition was going on. 
Well, so that's the, that's like, that's the other thing is that you have the Bible revolution into other languages right at the same time. Tyndale is is happening at the same time Luther's happening, and what these people are saying is no, the the papacy does have too much power. In other words, since this debate is already going on, the these people, these reformers, they're part of the Catholic Church, right? They're bishops, they're they're leaders and whatnot. Tyndale and um, and Luther were both priests in the Catholic Church, and. They they were fighting against the idea all of a sudden that the that the Pope had full authority and they didn't like it, and so what you have is a, a want to give the common person the the ability to to read and view their Bible, and this is really the strongest echo that we have today of the Reformation and whether we could debate whether or not the Reformation is still going on or not. Um, which I think if you look at the, the Torah movement, it certainly is, right? We're still fighting these same battles. Is the scriptures the only authority in the life of a, uh, the only final authority in the life of a believer? Within the Torah, the Torah movement today, you have people who are saying no. You have people who are saying no, that the, uh, the rabbis hold a place of power of divinely sanctioned authority within the, within the life of a believer. The sola scriptura is certainly being uh, fought over. You also have people who say, if you don't, you know, if you, Berkson, perfect example. Berkson says you you are not assured of your salvation, and you won't be until you stand before the throne of God, and He tells you whether or not you've done enough works of Torah to to uh, get in. This is Berkson's essential uh, teaching on soteriology, which is horribly flawed. So we see still today that we're still fighting these things. Uh, we're still fighting the the uh, for the solas. People are still fighting against the solas uh, in in the Torah movement today. But I think that Rob, you you can tell us a little bit once you get your head out of the chat room. You can tell us a little bit more about about the uh, the revolution of the of the various translations. What did the, I mean, how did the, the Reformation bring about this, this explosion of translations onto the scene? Well, as I, there's a great website, the Wycliffe Bible website has a link where like this timeline with images and little paragraphs describing key moments. And of course we had by the fifth century AD, we had, uh, the Bible was already in, uh, well, of course we had it in Greek, we had it in Latin, we had it in Syriac, we had it in Coptic, Armenian. Am I missing any? What am I missing? Um, Ethiopic, I think. So we we had a lot of Bible translation early on, right? But um, by the end of the 900s or ninth centuries, end of the 800s, we had the first New Testament in Arabic, right? And and we know in that same time frame that um, Saadi Gaon, etc., were dealing with Bible translation from the Jewish side into Arabic. So Arabic was a major language with the rise of Islam by the end of the first millennium A.D. Um, and then, but you also have these partial translations of the Psalms, like in the U.K., like into Old English, or I don't remember what they call the oldest forms of English, Anglo-Saxon and stuff like that. But it's really with the with the, the era of the Reformation and the printing press together where we just get this it takes off and all these translations then start to come from these different uh, uh, different people. 
KLB look. I'm try- okay. Good. So I'm, I want to share this with the chat room. It's not in your show notes. Um, this is the thing that um, this is what Rob just say, uh, shared with me. It's oh, this cool, timeline. Thanks. Hang on, just a sec. I have to get it. So I have two computers. Well, I can that are post not- it in the. Yeah, post it in the in, chat. Can you post in it in the chat? The chat? Uh, th- here's something that I didn't even realize. So they're going to go by the timeline. This is what they have for the timeline. They don't have the early stuff. The early stuff. Uh, they, they. Yeah, so they don't have the Dead Sea. They don't have the Dead no, Sea Scrolls no, on they're here. They're getting into this. Is more. It really starts to flesh out around the year 1000 and beyond. Is where the, this particular website does a good job. So I they think. they place the Septuagint at 250 BC. Then next they have at 400, uh, 450, a uh, 420 rather the Georgian Bible. The 38-character yeah, Armenian alphabet is uh, refashioned to the Georgian vernacular for the production of the first Georgian Bible, traditionally credited uh, to Mez, Mezrob Meshtats, co-translator of the Armenian scriptures. And then after that, this is probably the most, uh, I didn't. I had no clue about this. This is very interesting. January 1st, 635, the Chinese Bible, Nestorian Christianity from Syria, arrives in Xi'an, China. Am I saying that right? Xi'an, China. An 8th century account of the first missionaries coming before the emperor of China will be rediscovered in 1623, inscribed in a three-meter-tall limestone block, which uh, becomes known as the Nestorian Stella. Very cool. Wow, that's awesome. So that's even the before... Nestorian Stella is, has Aramaic in it, has Syriac also. And so that's even before uh, the earliest uh, the the earliest manuscripts that we have of the uh, Masoretic text is what ten the tenth century, ninth century. So this is even yes. before the Masoretic uh, uh, copies that we have. That's very interesting. Next we have. Uh, let's see here, Anglo-Saxon translations of the Psalms in seven thirty five. English translation of the Gospel of John uh, in 862. Very cool. Um, Slovakian translation followed by Bulgarian, Serbian, and Russian. And this is all in 867, which once again, this is still before the, uh, the, uh, the Masoretic translation or the Masoretic text comes onto the scene. At least I shouldn't say that. We know that the Masoretic text was around during this time, right? We just don't have any copies of it. Earliest extant Arabic New Testament, January 1st, 867. So I think that they're just saying within the year of 867. So what, but look at this. We have this expanse, right, of this, this message going out, right? It's, it's going out, and these missionaries are leading, are the kind of the tip of the spear for, do, for these translation efforts, largely. And, um, and that's what we see again. We see that, 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 that expansion in the time of the the Protestant Reformation, yeah. um, because the idea is we're, we're uh, getting the Word of God into people's hands, which builds critical thinking skills, right? It builds language, it builds knowledge of God's Word, it builds critical thinking, and now they can be they can look and and have their own opinion based on their reading of the Bible. Well, that's a good thing. But it's not the BL on end all because we could say, well, in the YouTube world that we're in now, yes, people have Bibles and everybody, everyone's a heretic, right? Uh, everyone has their own opinion about this or that, and they've read their Bible. 
But the diff- here's one of the differences between the Reformation printing press Bibles and the culture of people then versus now. Maybe, uh, you know, call me, maybe I'm being a little over-romantic on this, but I think that in that day, the passion we see in those translators getting the Word of God into people, I think people were thirsty for it. Oh, yeah. And they would they bought it, and they 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 read the Scriptures, and it was super important to them to sit and read and learn the Scriptures. I'd, how many people in our world today in America have Bibles, but do we sit down, on our, or do we have that passion to, I'm going to read the Scriptures today in my own language? Um, yeah. You know, and, and how does that in our own lives? Do we have that passion? Um, they understood that it was a translation, right? They understood that the laborers were translating. And matter of fact, here's here's something for us to learn from. Some of the translations into Finnish and other, these other languages during the Reformation, they were not translations from the Hebrew and Greek. They would use Luther's translation. They would use the Vulgate because people didn't have the resources. Sure. Right? They did the best they could with what they had. And it was valuable and God used it. But in our day, the stakes are higher. We I don't have that excuse. Well, Caleb, all I had, the best I could teach you was from the Latin Vulgate. No, we, we don't have that anymore. Oh, we they, have yeah, a we, call we, to precision is way, way higher. And I think a lot of those reformers would have just loved to have, have access what we have today. So, th- so let me let me let me uh, restate. You're saying that the that the resource we're in better shape now than probably many people were in the what even from the fifth century on. We're in really really great shape. Maybe even before in terms that. of access. In terms of access to to the various uh, you know all the different manuscripts and whatnot. However, the the drive and the, and the want. For these things is so much Lazy. less. Yeah, yeah. A, a huge laziness and a huge taking for granted of the scriptures, right? You know, I, I was telling somebody the other day about uh, Accordance Bible software and how, you know, I don't really know how to use this software as it needs to be used. But if you look at packages uh, from like Logos Bible software or Accordance Bible software or uh, some of the other, you know, Crossways or Crossroads or whatever it is. Um, olive tree. If you look at the the major packages, these major packages are are not just the Bible, right? But it's like the Bible uh, in English. You know, uh, fifty different, Josephus, fifty Bible. different, yeah, fifty different English well, translations. Yeah, the, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Coptic, the Syriac. You know, all these different uh, photocopies of all these different you know uh, manuscripts and everything. And if you buy these huge, huge packages that have, you know, also some of the reformers and, you know, preaching from all these people, you get into not only the thousands, but the tens of thousands of dollars. I think, uh, you know, in total, if you bought everything from Accordance, it's like $30,000 or something like that. It's like a car, brand new car. Yeah. And people are like, oh, my word, I can't believe that, you know, these things. But but the thing is, is that when we think about spiritual well-being and we think about the life and relationship, how much is your relation, how much is our relationship and our knowledge of God actually worth? And the answer is that it's priceless. And so the point is, and I mean, I'm, here's one, I'm talking as a person who the software that I use is, uh, you know, is because my father uh, is able to uh, work for Accordance Bible Software. And since I use his computer, I'm able to use all of the software that he uh, benefits from. So I haven't had to go out and buy it 
But the point is, is that, you know, we have all these resources, but so many people aren't using them. And even myself, I'm at fault for not taking the time to get to know how to use but these here, resources here's the, thing, the you most. You buy all the software in the world, but the but if you look at some of the core skill sets to to take advantage of it, those take time and dedication. Sure. I mean, even look at look at Luther or Wycliffe or whoever is doing translating work. They had years of learning the languages first. Then they had many, many years of the labor of translation. Yeah, they weren't so slackers. We, we, it's not like they just sat down and and typed it up and it was done. No, this is years and years and years and years. Okay, how many of us in our spiritual walk do we have a goal that's bigger than today or bigger than this week? Do I have a 10-year goal? You know, today, oh, well— the world's going to end. No, everybody's so thinking the world's going to end in Feast of Tabernacles or something that that consumes their attention. They waste all their energy. Whereas, do you have a 10-year goal? Should the Lord tarry? In 10 years, I want to be somewhere. Back to, if I may, back to circle back to the, the person I was speaking with over Skype from the other country. He, I, I told him, I said, look, Here's the thing. My advice to you is set aside this how to pronounce the name issue. Go learn Hebrew for two years. Just learn biblical Hebrew from a teacher, a rep, you know, a teacher where you have homework, you have assignments, you have tests, accountability. Then after that, take a year of Aramaic. Then take some basic Masora classes. Then just spend a year just reading and growing in knowledge of 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 who the teachers are, who are the main uh, hitters in the realm of this, then come back to your question. Then you're going to be standing on your own two feet. But if you, but if you don't do that, if you stay excited with the superficial, before you know it, four or five years are going to be gone by, and you're going to be swimming in the same stream, getting blown around, right, without any foundation. So it doesn't mean that learning Bible languages has to be your goal. But if your main motivating questions require a skill set that you don't have to answer for yourself and to stand confidently yourself, then, I, you know, sit down and, like Yeshua says, sit down and what, what's it going to cost to build the house you want? And are you going to be able to finish building that house? And if you're not going to be able to finish building the house, then don't start building it. You know, I, that's, that's what I say. Um, yeah, that, we need to think in terms of long-term discipline. Discipline in learning needs to be part of, of our conception of discipleship, not quick fix. You know, the chat room says uh, much of these packages, talking about the packages for Logos and or, uh, you know, the or Accordance or other Bible softwares, um, are available elsewhere freely. And that might be tro- true. Yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly, there are, there are good resources out there for a person to be able to study the Word. The uh, Blue Letter Bible is a good example. There's, I, I mean, and we we talked about this a lot at, at family camp uh, j- last month. To yeah, last month. Um, that you know, there are some really good uh, uh, free resources to be able to study these things. The point is, though, is that even with free or having to spend money on it. What we see within the Christian church, a lot within the Christian church, not across the board, not across the board, but what we see within uh, the Christian church and especially within the Hebrew roots movement 
and or the Torah movement is that people get this, this, uh, they get on fire for the word and for the spirit, right? They get on fire because they've learned something new and they get the, a taste of learning something, learning, you know, having this, uh, aha moment. And that's awesome. That's and that's really awesome. Cool. That's great. But instead of going and, and putting in the hard work, a lot of people, not all, a lot of people, instead of going and putting in the hard work and really cultivating that, that, <clears throat> that want and that need and that, that fervor for the word, instead of doing that, it's quick fix. It's how do I get it as fast as possible? It's now I'm a teacher now and yeah. I'm going to have a, my own ministry teaching this thing. Um, and sometimes that can create more noise for the world. It, it actually makes it, you know, it, it can be frustrating. Um, so, but you know, this is just where, this is the world we live in and our, we're called to, to grow in these things in, in wisdom and discernment. Somebody and, in, somebody in the chat room is asking what a good, uh, what a good, uh, old Testament commentary from a Jewish perspective is. Kyle and Dalich is one of the better uh, commentaries. They're Christians, but they come. They yeah. they certainly look from a from a Jewish perspective. Uh, Kyle and Dalich was mid, yeah mid nineteenth, so it's like mid eighteen hundred, mid late eighteen hundred. It's one of my first so go tos. So it's a it's it's a bit dated, but it's it's uh, a good one. Yeah, I still I still go. That's still one of the first things I look at to see if what Kyle and Dalich say, because they will steer you in all sorts of great you know. You need to look at, you know, the rabbis on this, or you need to look at the church fathers on this. Or you need to look, you know, they steer you in all sorts of different ways to be able to really try to, you know, Calvin will say this, but, you know, Rashi will say this. It's really a very... Here's here's an, another angle of this, because I've had people, you know, I bet a lot of people have had this experience. They're talking about what translation should I use? What translation should I use? Really, that's a question of authority. It's who, sh who can I trust? In in Luther's Germany or in well with Tyndale's time, um, there was already the Geneva Bible, right? And in the King James time, so if you went to the time of King James, if you had money and access, you probably could have a couple different translations of the Bible. You could have the Geneva Bible, you could have Tyndale, and you could have the the King James, right? You could have different English, and you could say, well, which of these do I trust, right? Who, which of these do I use, and so. That crisis is much more like uh, uh, real or present, I think, in our day because we have so many English translations. Like, well, which one should I trust? Which one can I trust? Which commentary can I trust? Really, that's a question of who can I trust? Who's in authority? Well, the answer is this. The answer is just like it was an authority problem that the reformers were dealing with, so too we have an authority problem. So what, who's our authority? Well, what's the, what are the facts? What are the questions? And that's if, if we say, well, the, the Bible was in Hebrew. So what's your authority? Well, I can't read Hebrew, so I need someone I can trust to mediate, to stand between me and the Hebrew. And who can I trust? Right? That's, that's a, that's a crisis. That's a legitimate crisis. So what are the options to that person? Well, one option is I set aside my Bible speculative questions for a while and I just learn Hebrew. That's the heart. That's that's the climb Mount Everest, right? That's the one where I'm going to do it myself. And I need other people, obviously, to help me do that. 
Another is just, well, I'm going to, there's three people that have been to the top of Mount Everest and they've, they've written, they've described it, right? And so I'm going to compare their descriptions and imagine myself on Mount Everest. That's okay. Not everybody can climb Mount Everest. Not everybody's wired for that. But at least we want to be soberly minded when we think about it, right? In terms of basic, the salvation message, you can get it in your English translations, right? You're going to get it there. But if you're, if we're going to get into uh, the fine surgery, right, where, uh, the things we're talking about, like what makes what we call the one Torah movement what it is. Well, it's, well, there's other people probably out there using one Torah that we, Caleb, you and I might say, okay, we totally would want to distance ourselves from that. Well, that's a discernment that it doesn't really emerge until there is, until the conflict happens. Wait, wait a minute. Are you saying what you're, what I think you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, so for example, the, uh, Berkson guy, he might consider himself one Torah. I don't know. Uh, but Obviously, it's a different brand if we're going to use the word brand. So this is the difficulty with language and learning or, or and, and labeling things and trying to say this is what it is. Um, ultimately, it's the scriptures that is what we're looking to. We're all people that are imperfect and fallible and uh, broken. But God has given, right? He's given us uh, this, this desire in life to to press on into the study of his word. And we're not alone. He hasn't left us as, as orphans. We've got so many wonderful uh, uh, teachers that have gone before us with the languages, the lexicons, the history books. It's really on us. It's yeah. on us as individuals. How important is it for me? And at what point do I have, am I going to have ask somebody else's specialization that I'm going to depend on? I'm going to depend on their specialization for what I'm building, or am I going to try to do it all, right? Uh, and what we learn is that we need each other. No one person can do it all. We, we need to depend on other people's specialization on things. Um, and this is all, this all gets sorted out and sifted out in the long run. It's not, there's no quick fix. There's no shortcut solution to the problems, the messiness, as a person in an email recently said. It's so messy. I'm like, yeah, Yeshua never promised it to be. Yeah, it wasn't going to be easy. Easy. Yeah. So, are we? Are we can. Are we growing in the fruits of the spirit? Are we? Do we see ourselves as wise in our own eyes versus I'm going to listen and increase learning? Um, and am I growing in discernment on what is wise and what is foolish? Because the Bible also describes there are things that are foolish out there, and I'm not going to. We have limited breath, limited time. I'm not going to spend my time on foolishness. And so, like with the person with the how to pronounce the divine name, I said, you know what? If you if you don't if this important if this question is as important to you as it sounds, then this is the path you need to take. You need to learn Hebrew. You need to learn Aramaic, and you need to learn the Masora. If if you're really if this is really the the deal breaker for you, this is your only option. Otherwise, you're going to be you, you have no you're going to just be persuaded back and forth by the most eloquent speaker, you know. Anyway, you got to either you got to trust somebody ultimately. No doubt. Uh, we want to hear from you guys, and so you should uh, 
let us know what you think. Uh, do that by giving us a call, 253-465-3205. I'll give it to you one more time. It's 253-465-3205. You can also send us emails, chegg, that's C-H-E-G-G, at torresource.com. It's chegg at torresource.com. This has been a fun show for me because I enjoy very much studying the Reformation and the history that goes along. Church history in general is really one of my favorite things to study. And um, so it's it's always fun, even if the people out there don't find it to be interesting or if Rob gets bored. I, I find it uh, to be extremely uh, fun and interesting to research these things in order to, um, in order to present them to everyone on the show. So uh, I would also like to say, please don't forget that uh, show 193, that's this show, is mainly brought to you, the listener, by other listeners. Uh, it is This show is made possible through the generous donations of uh, the people who listen to this show. And if you'd like to donate to this show and or Torah Resource, you can do so by going to TorahResource.com. And then hovering, uh, click on the donate button, and uh, yeah, you can even send us a note in your donation to let us know uh, that you're listening to the Robin Caleb Show. We certainly appreciate notes like that. All right, until next time, we hope that uh, just like the Reformation, the show and the work that we're doing will glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>